0: All I want is what you two guys have. I want to be able to have driven from Oklahoma to Florida and not mapped out based on where I think I won't get harmed at on the way.
1: Welcome to the Out of Context Podcast. My name is Ben Freeman. The voice you just heard belongs to Nick Lee. Nick is a husband, a father of four, a former senior pastor and nonprofit CEO, and a black man. The conversation of racism, injustice, and equality is one that is often fraught with conflict within the church. And so, Jimmy and I wanted to introduce you, our listeners, to a perspective that we, as white men in this society, can't speak into. Because it isn't our lived experience. So thank you for listening today. Thank you for doing the hard work of examining yourself as you listen to this conversation. A couple of technical things about today's episode. There was so much great conversation when this was recorded that we couldn't possibly fit it all into a single episode. So this will be a two-part series. We hope to release the second part very soon. In addition to that, we recorded this conversation via a video conference call during a thunderstorm in Oklahoma City, so you may notice a difference in the audio quality. But we're so grateful that you're listening today, and without any further delay, here's our conversation with Nick. I
2: think progressive white people have somehow had this notion that we've moved ahead, and I, you know, you can't argue that we haven't. But I think we just thought it was static, that it doesn't have to be maintained, that it doesn't have to be—racism is continually—it's been a part of our system from the beginning, and so it's an active thing that we have to eradicate, and it's systemic. I have a lot of friends that—I mean, they've just post they have posted stuff on social media that is like—they uh, don't believe in systemic racism. They just think that it's not real at all. They— have been posted, I don't know if you guys have seen that video. The video that has Denzel Washington and Morgan Freeman, and it ends with the Martin uh, MLK thing and arguing against that there's not systemic racism. That you know, arguing that there is no such thing as systemic racism, and you know, to use MLK at the end of that is just beyond to miss that irony that the guy who said there is systemic racism lost his life making that claim, then try to use his clip. They wouldn't use his, they wouldn't use him if they were, if he was still alive for sure.
0: Well, yeah. Cause, cause before he died, I tell people this a lot. I actually did a podcast uh, last week. Somebody asked me to come on the podcast and I just reminded him and his listeners. I said, here's the truth before MLK died. Like he was one of the most hated people not just by white folks, but by black folks as well. Cause uh, white folks thought he talked too much and didn't know his place. And so like, he's been severely whitewashed. And I, I mean, I don't mean to make that a pun, but he's been super sanitized so that he could fit the new narrative. Um, and it's interesting too, that people use, especially like the people you're talking about, because I know some of those folks, because I've seen some of those folks post stuff. Um, those, those folks have never read the last couple of books he wrote. So Dr. King's last book was, um, you know, where do we go from here? Community or chaos. And none of those quotes that people use in their argument are in any of those books. Um, and so, yeah, it's really, it's really interesting to me the way that especially white evangelicals are picking and choosing, like, it's, you know, Anders Owens, Morgan Freeman, uh, Martin Luther King from out of context quotes, trying to make, I, Jimmy, you asked like, what's the questions that we're not at? I wanna know why so many white folks are so upset about equality. That's the question I have. It's like, okay, I don't understand why we have to keep explaining to people. Like, all, all I want is what you two guys have. I want to be able to have driven from Oklahoma to Florida and not mapped out based on where I think I won't get harmed at on the way. Like when my wife decided we needed to stop to go to the bathroom and like someplace near like Dothan mississippi and i was like there is no way in this world i'm going to the bathroom and you know or or whatever that part of i think it was alabama i'm not going to that part of alabama um i want to be able to drive through the country and not have to worry about that stuff and when i explain that over and over again to people and they just look back at me with like bewilderment like nick i don't know why there's such a big deal i want to know why white folks find it so hard to believe that I would like to live equally.
2: Yeah. I That's think great. most white people don't have a clue what you're talking about.
1: Yep.
2: Right. So because we don't right. experience, well, not most white white people don't have a clue what you're talking about. And yeah. so because we don't experience it, we don't consider it real. And when it comes up, I mean, so I grew up in Southeastern Oklahoma, which is known as little Dixie, Oklahoma. Yeah. It's where a lot of post-Civil War people moved to. Uh, and and the thing is, is a lot of the people who moved to that area after the Civil War were actually like they were they were poor farmers. You know, it wasn't like the wealthy people who were moving to that area. And I think there's a lot of resentment. So even when uh, a person who's an African American says, "Man, I'm I'm worried about these things," or "I don't trust the police," I, it makes me nervous to be pulled over. I think I know from my own childhood that that the white response to that is, "One, you're really kind of making that up. It's not so bad." And number two, the other response is, well, it's rough for us too, right? Like there's this kind of we don't – any claim to injustice on the part of people of color feels like a threat to people who are white because there's it, – it's, uh, it's upsetting the status quo. We would rather just go on and not think about it, to be honest.
0: Well, it's, it's that whole idea that there's only so much of the pie that we can have. And the more that you keep pushing for more of the pie, then it takes more out of my mouth. That's that's the only thing I can think of, um, and that's like I think one of the darkest parts of like racism in America is, and I think you guys know this. Like the idea of like being white isn't predominant until you've got to figure out how to separate like groups of people. So like you've got all these poor people who were enslaved at the time and you're making the move to make it where it's all African American, all Africans in slavery and you're moving even the lowest part of white society, a notch up from black folks. And that's when you start hearing about like, we're white, we're in this together kind of thing. Right. In that period of time. So from that point on, you end up with this whole, like there's 10% of the pie that you can have. And, Every more, every bigger piece that the black group gets is a piece that you can't have. So it's interesting you said, like, Little Dixie full of, like, the poor white farmers. That's the reality, though, is you fight a civil war to, you know, to keep slavery and all those things, and you've got this group of white people who are the ones actually fighting the, the war And it actually will never actually help them out. So, like, you know, you've got these guys who are literally going to benefit financially from it. And those guys are, of course, fighting tooth and nail to keep slavery. But what is the poor white farmer who who is poor? The only thing that makes him different, in essence, is that he's not black and he's not a slave.
2: Right, that and one that, little it, step of, of some kind of weird dignity yeah. of at least it's, I'm not a
0: slave. Yeah. At least I'm not a slave, at least I'm not black. And so now every time that a black person like myself says I want more for my kids, there's just like automatic response that goes, every time that you do that, you end up taking more out of my, you, you're taking it from my plate. And so that's, I think, one of the, one of the sinister things about like racism in America is it pits people who have the same plight in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm not saying that like poor whites have the same issues that like, like, yes, am I worried about getting pulled over a hundred percent all the time? I'm a very cautious driver. I was telling a friend of mine, if you get into my car right now and we were driving, he would see you t- would see two noticeable things that maybe wouldn't click to you, but it would click to me. I never drive with my wallet in my back pocket, hmm. and I never drive with my cell phone in my pocket. They always sit in the middle console in the cup holder so that in the event I did get pulled over, it's clear to see that that's my wallet and my cell phone because my insurance happens to be on my cell phone. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't want to make it sound, I don't want to like take back like that. black folks are, there's some things that we personally have to deal with, but the truth is one of those things about racism in America is it's a lot of times like people who have like who are dealing with some of the same issues like poverty wise, educationally wise, no health care, those things like we're in that part together. And yet we're fighting each other um, about the color of our skin. So,
1: yeah, it's a, it's a
0: pretty, man. it's a pretty awful thing.
1: I think another thing I've noticed a lot, especially in recent weeks, as all of this has kind of come into the public consciousness again, is that once once you know something, you can't unknow it, right? And so once I recognize that my brothers and sisters of color are being treated differently, in order for me to, even even selfishly, just to continue to feel like a decent human being, I've got to do something about it. And so I think there is a resistance among some folks to like, it's like, I don't, I don't want to know that because then that requires change in me. It requires me to exercise empathy. And some people just aren't willing to go there and do the work. Well, it's a big ask. And
0: I think this is going to sound somewhat hopeless for mine, but I don't mean it to be this that way. I think that human beings, as a whole, work on um, how something benefits them, right? Like, yep. what is my incentive to do something? So we go to work. Um, now, now, granted, most of us, like the three of us, have jobs and do things that we love. So there's an incentive, whether that be creating or whatever we're doing. But there's also the incentive of like money, right? I always, I have started to ask the question as I have gotten older, what's the incentive for somebody who doesn't look like me to, to, to do the hard work of understanding where I'm at and then doing the hard work to change the systematic injustice. Yeah. And like, if we're talking kingdom language, the incentive is, you know, I think James Smith said it best, like. At baptism we became first family so what happens to me directly affects you right um, but from a world standpoint like i don't know what the incentive is like if you are receiving the privilege of being a white person i don't know why you would give it back and so i have become less angry i think about it to some extent because i'm like I, I in some ways understand it like that's a lot of heart to have to go back and map as far back as you have to understand how you got privilege and what the injustice actually is, is a lot of work. And it, it seems, it doesn't seem like as much work to me because I've lived my entire life understanding like the roadmap, how we got here. But for my white friends who haven't ever had to deal with it and haven't talked about it, that's a lot of, that's a lot of trauma. That's a lot of just, horrible, horrendous things to have to go back over and have to then try to figure out, okay, so what do we do now? Actually, my friend Nick asked me the day, he goes, Nick, so does this mean that we can just bring everybody up to the same level? Or does that mean that we have to give some stuff back? And I say, well, let me know.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but that's also part of the problem, right? You are an equal citizen with me in the United States. That's the the whole... The idea that you're waiting for someone to let you know how that goes is still, (laughs) right? Like that's still that systemic part. And I think that what people uh, don't think about is that um, D'Angelo in uh, White Fragility makes a distinction between being prejudiced, which is an individual thing. Do I prejudge someone based upon the color of their skin? And then racism. Yeah. So people might say, "Well, I'm not a racist, right?" Uh, well, someone who li- grows up in southeastern Oklahoma and there are no people of color in their town. I don't treat I don't treat black people poorly, right? Like they don't even live around me. <laughs> That's <laughs> but right. Racism yeah. is the fact that there are no people of color in your town. Like in my hometown, fifteen minutes south of my hometown was a town that had a high number of African Americans, and it was a separated. At one point, it was a segregated segregated place, right? One town was white, one town was black. Yeah. That is racism because racism is always systemic. It's built into our system. And so even this idea that you have to ask how it turns out, its not a cooperative citizen thing of owning our history together, um, yeah. still is part of that racism system. And, it, it, and all of us are caught up in it. I... Had a conversation with Valerie Still last week with Jay, and, uh, and we were just talking kind of privately. And I, I remember this experience in, in North Tulsa, where uh, me and a friend were picking up these kids for for basketball. They were like twelve year old kids, and all of these kids were black kids. And went to one door and was wait, and nobody came to the door. And I was going back to the suburban, but this young guy, maybe twenty years old, had been walking down the street. And he got my attention. He said, hey, you, you're you waiting for Tyrell. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, he's coming. He went to the store. And I looked up the street. And here, he's coming on his bike. And so I go ahead and get in the Suburban. And at that point, Tyrell's grandmother came to the door. And this young man is crossing the street. And this police car comes along. And they had this kind of interchange. The police officer says, you need to get out in the middle of the road. And the young man says, well, you need to not be driving so fast in the neighborhood. Like, they kind of give it to each other. And then that was kind of that, and I, and I had heard that conversation before I got back in the truck. Well then, the grandmother, the young man, and Tyrell all were at the door of this house at the same time, and the police car pulls into the driveway in front of us, goes up to the door where they're at, we can't hear anything that's going on, grabs this young man, cuffs him, puts him in the back of the car, pulls out, and goes. They're gone. Tyrell gets into the car, and I'm like, man, what just what just happened? I was like, that's your brother? Yeah. Does he have any problems with the law? Not that I know of. And I said, well, did he read him his rights or anything? Nope. And I said, what did the officer say? He said, well, he said that he cussed, that my brother cussed the officer out. And I said, nope. I heard the (laughs) whole conversation. And I've told that story before, and I ask people, so picture in your head how that went down. And usually the thought is, is that the police officer is white. But the truth is, is the police officer was black. Right that is systemic racism because that would not have happened in South Tulsa no matter what the officer's color was but it will happen in North Tulsa no matter what the officer's color is and it is about a distinction of class and race the way that those two things happen because it's bigger than this individual thing and I think what we all want to do is we want to absolve ourselves individually well I'm not racist um, which may or may not be true but we don't want to, this, this, we don't. I think you asked this question how come, how can we can't be equal? What's the problem? I think honestly, white people don't want to do the hard work of acknowledging that we have a real deep systemic problems when it comes to systemic prejudice against yeah. people of color. Yeah. It's a hard thing.
0: I, I actually, so I figured we would go down this road this conversation would go down the systemic road and we message me. So I was trying to figure out the best way to think about how like the best way to articulate it. And I think, so right now, I have been thinking a lot and reading a lot about like even reconstruction. And, and I don't know if you guys have studied reconstruction a lot or not. Most people haven't. Um, but <clears throat> reconstruction is that period of time after the civil war ends that's supposed to essentially um, shift the country to a place where the systems are fixed. Okay. So I'm not going to give you like the huge history lesson, but just the really short less, the really short like version of this is reconstruction starts after the civil war is over. The South is under reconstruction um, as they're bringing them back into the union um, generals, lieutenants, officers of the Confederacy are disallowed from being in, like, houses of representatives and Senate and all of that stuff. So you get this, like, huge, like, wave of black men and women in, like, Senate houses and, and, and you know, in the South, which is obviously unacceptable for most people, right? Uh, Lincoln gets shot. Reconstruction gets short-ended. So we end up with a short-ended reconstruction period. Um, what happens directly after that is, so the emancipation proclamation is, you know, it's there. Black people are free. Um, but then all of a sudden you get criminality in the way that you find it. So like policing wasn't the same before the civil war. There really wasn't these huge police departments and all of that stuff. Like that just wasn't a part of the makeup of America. Prisons really weren't a thing, not the way that we talked about them today. Um, so you end up with, you end up with this new criminality and black folks are getting sent to jail for vagrancy. Um, they're getting sent to jail for not having jobs, um, all of these different things. So even the system of policing in our country is based on, it started to enact almost second slavery, um, it is to enact second slavery, yeah. and you're talking about you forced have all these labor. Free black people. Yeah. Oh, when when my friend asked me the other day about should we give it back, I said, okay. So I'm a huge history buff. I watch the History Channel, like it's one of my favorite channels. To to my wife's dismay, and they have this um, series called uh, "The Men Who Built America." So it's like Rockefeller, Vanderbilt. Um, you know, J.P. Morgan, all those guys, right? And we're talking like U.S. Steel and all of that stuff. Well, the truth is, when people talk about like these men built America from the bootstraps, well, just just using U.S. Steel as an example, U.S. Steel takes part in that after Reconstruction period where black folks are sent to prison for vagrancy and stuff. So they they hire white workers to do certain things, but what they do is they go into the South and get almost free labor from the prison farms to build America. So slavery's over, but then you have second slavery, even before Jim Crow, really. And so it's a system. And I guess the next question is, can you, can you fix a system that was set up in the first place to not allow black folks to be equal partners? Or do you have to start from the beginning again? Yeah. And I think that may be the reason why people are against talking about systematic injustice. Because the truth is, if the system was built from the bottom to keep people from being equal, how do you actually fix the system to now become a place where it, like we have this like idea of what America is supposed to be and what like criminal justice should be? But if it started out in the first place as a system to keep blacks and other people of color from being equals, the system's not broken.
2: Yeah, the system's doing what it had, what it was set in place to do the whole time. Yeah. And to be clear for, for listeners, vagrancy wasn't just, you know, vagrancy today is the, the picture of the teenage kid that's just standing around. Vagrancy, being unemployed right. was a crime for a black, right. not for white people, yeah. but for black people. If a yeah. black person didn't have a job... That was considered vagrancy. And then they could be basically enslaved in these prison farms and free labor. Right. It wasn't just like cleaning up things beside the side side of the road for public works, Mm -hmm. but local farmers, really local plantation owners could hire out from the prison forced labor.
0: Yeah. 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 And you're, so you're still not paying the worker. You're paying the system. Paying the system. That's right. Put them back. Yeah. Yeah. So that's. So that's the question that's he, when we started talking about like, I'll let you figure out if people need to give some stuff back. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, some of, we talked about the, the big myth in America is we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. Yeah. I mean, okay. People did do hard. There's some, there's hard work involved, but I don't know if you guys are familiar with what economics works, but it's way more, it's much easier to build something great if you don't have to pay the labor force.
2: Oh Yeah. Right. 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 I
0: mean,
2: so— And and our whole system, uh, we call it capitalism, but the truth is is capitalism in its purest sense uh, was—and Adam Smith wrote two books. One was about actually fairness and justice. No one ever talks about that one. But um, capitalism is the idea of people actually having capital. But our system is actually about paying people the least that you can to make yourself the wealthiest that you can— and it yeah. really thrives on a system where you don't have to pay anything for doing work for you, which was slavery up until the 20th century and yeah. beyond, yeah. actually. Yeah. I, I try to tell people, because if you, I think people think that, that the Civil, we had this in America, we don't have a sense of history. I don't think most people do. So for a lot of people, the Civil War seems like ancient history. But my grandfather's, and I, he was, an, I was an adult when he passed away, my grandfather's grandfather, fought in the Civil War. Like, that's not long history. This is, no. you know, I, I, in our lifetimes, those of us who were, I mean, I'm older than you, definitely in my lifetime, uh, there were people who were still born into slavery, still alive. I mean, it's an incredible, I don't know, you know, it's not that long
0: ago. So, Well, um, that's the, that's the other downside of Reconstruction, not finishing what it was set out to do, is because, so, you know, another systematic issue is, like, you know, this whole fight over, like, the Confederate flag and stuff, right? Um, I've watched that thing. I knew as soon as NASCARs. – I'm a huge NASCAR fan. Um, <laughs> that may come as a surprise to some folks. I like it because I'm, when
2: I start watching it, when I fall asleep on the couch, when I wake up, it it's exactly where it was when I left. Cars oh, going around the circle. a circle.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> come on Jimmy! they're doing more than that there's strategy and uh no so so push the
1: pedal on the right not the left
0: that's right don't forget the clutch uh (laughs) that so many people i knew that that was going to be a firestorm and i just kind of i was like somebody just lit a match to watch the world burn like nascar good job i'm glad today the ncaa says that they it won't uh, allow championship games to happen in places that have the Confederate flag in their, you know, their state flag, which really only affects Mississippi. Um, So all my old Miss fans (laughs) are going to be super mad. Um, But like that whole thing is a lack of history, right? Yeah. Reconstruction doesn't happen. And you end up with people who believe that that is actually a part of their heritage. And, and the the example i give is in nazi germany essentially they had reconstruction and people were were taught historically listen this is not a part of something that we should celebrate this is a part of our history but it's not something to be celebrated so nobody you know you don't go to soccer games in germany and you know the folks from you know deep south germany aren't waving nazi flags because They'll understand. Yes, it's part of our history, but they have enough understanding of what happened to understand that it's not a part of history that you should, you know. There, there are no Hitler statues in Germany. Yeah. Right, it just doesn't happen. And,
2: and they, they would be deeply offended at any kind of if any kind of positive reference was made to Hitler. It would be deeply offensive. Yeah. There's always it's, an exception to the rule, but for German society, they don't want. It's a sh- That's a shameful period in their history.
1: Right. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and the Confederacy only lasted, what, five years, right? Right. So right. it's not this <laughs> lengthy, long heritage of history that you could, mm-hmm. terrible as it may be, that you came from. Like, it was five years. Yeah. And
2: it was yeah. treasonous. I mean,
1: that's the, yes, I mean, Also, that. I, well, well, a lot of that don't, doesn't don't make any sense. I mean, don't <laughs> tell <laughs> people that. Don't tell people that. Because,
0: you know, uh, I heard a guy the other day say, but, you know, uh, Americans died on both sides. I was like, actually that's not true because the people who died on the other side at the moment weren't Americans. Right. They were on right. purpose fighting against. Right. I don't ever I don't understand it. It's it's baffling to me. Um until I realized that we in America do a really bad job of educating our our, mm-hmm. our kids even. With the educational system both in inner cities and rural areas have not done the job that they're supposed to do. And so you get this kind of thing where you can somehow believe that the Confederacy was a good thing and that's your heritage and that's something you got to hold on to. Well, that's an educational problem. That's a, you can't eradicate that, but you can teach it in such a way that people realize, well, actually that wasn't even a flag of the Confederacy until after the war's over.
2: But Nick, I mean I think so education does matter. I think that really, I mean I'm a I was a former teacher. I I get that. But I think so much of this, I think this is why so many of us feel like we're losing the national debates that happen. Because yeah. we we think that's about information, but it's really about emotion. Yeah. It's about fear, that's it's true. about anxiety. It's not about yeah, cuz you could give people facts all day long. Back yeah. when the refugee thing was the highlight, when, you know, we were recognizing that Trump was shutting things down with the refugees, it doesn't matter that refugees are the safest people in our society. Low crime, more than the people who have grown up here, refugees are safe for our society. What matters is, is there's a fear to it. And what I haven't figured out is how to have these conversations in ways that don't push people into their own emotion-based ideologies and their perceptions of nature. But I think that somehow a part of it is, you know, so let's let's shift just a little bit. You've been yeah. a pastor. Yeah. You've been a part of leading. And you and I have had conversations about how white pastors don't talk about politics, unless they're pro-Trumpers, and they do. Mm. For, but for the most part in mainstream churches, pastors pull back from the political. They they don't—they They, they want to, you know, quote, preach the gospel— not do politics, yeah. whereas my uh, African-American friends who are pastors, they don't have any problem, I mean, because everything's political, and we're going to talk about politics, and there's just this this distinction, and you've been a pastor which, you know, deals with people's spiritual and emotional needs and those approaches on things. Like, um, when when you were a pastor, how did you approach some of these issues? Like,
0: do um, you mean in a white church or a black church? Which one do you want to either.
2: because Either. So let's just say for all of our listeners, I'm sure that Ben will do a really cool intro piece. But, I mean, Nick, you have a unique background that a lot of people don't mm. have. You grew up in, uh, you know, Jinx. Were you in Jinx? Where were you at in Tulsa?
0: <laughs> yeah, so uh, I went to school at Victory, which is a private school that's right outside of Jinx. Uh, my parents, we moved to Broken Arrow. So we lived in the suburb of Tulsa for the majority of my life. Um, so the way I explain it to folks is I, I have lived a life in tension. Um, so I went to a, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of using the word like integrated when it comes to churches really anymore. Cause it's kind of a farce to, to say we're not, we're sort of integrated, but not really. Um, so I grew up in a predominantly white suburb and a predominantly white church. Um, the first churches I served as a Methodist were in Bixby, Oklahoma, uh, and then, uh, Ada, Oklahoma. And then when I moved to the city, it was the first like predominantly African-American church I, uh, pastored. So I've lived like this weird tension, Um, Everything from being one of the good ones, which I think me and you have had that conversation, you know, when I was in certain places where it's predominantly white, folks were like, you're just one of the good ones. Like When these issues of race come up, people are like, they don't, they wouldn't associate me with those issues because I was Nick. They knew me, they knew me personally. I was articulate, educated, you know, all of those things. And so it was me and then every other black person that they had never met.
2: That they had never met, that's the key, right? It's perception.
0: Right, right. And that's the big, that's, so that's the problem with the idea of being one of the good ones is it's only based on this understanding of, like, who you know. So it's not as if the, the thought process is that black folks in general are articulate and intelligent. It's, I know a black person who happens to be intelligent and articulate. Um... And then moving to Oklahoma City, being in a predominantly black church, the, the reason why it's like being intention is because when I first got there, people thought I was, a, I was a plant. And that's a real conversation I've had with people in Oklahoma City was people thought that the bishop and the cabinet sent me to Oklahoma City to infiltrate this black church so that it could get taken over and, you know, morphed into something different. And it did not help that two years in, I moved us from the northeast side to First Church downtown um, and started sharing space. People were – you want to talk about people were super suspicious. Um,
2: Yeah, so I'm going to – so for our listeners who aren't familiar with – you know, there's some that aren't familiar with Oklahoma. You grew up in two suburbs – Of Tulsa, which is one of the most racially divided towns, cities that I've ever seen. Like uh, I lived there for a period of time and typically you have this idea that North Tulsa is the black part of town, South Tulsa is the white part of town. um, And you don't think of the suburbs as being, uh, I mean, the suburbs would be considered part of that white part of town. Then you've got these kind of fringes on the East and West side that are lower class white people kind of a thing. But yep yeah. uh it's where the Tulsa race riots happened in nineteen twenty one like or yeah. and uh and some of those divisions have they're palpable in in that city i think yeah. uh the south side of the of the city gets a lot of fine it has historically gotten a lot of financial assistance inf- uh investment from the city and other private sources the north side doesn't even have the infrastructure to put in large stores when it comes to the sewage system so right. you grew up in that environment, and you went to a primarily white school and a church that people would have considered—you're right—people would have considered Victory an integrated church. Yeah. Um, and we can talk—you can explain more about why you felt like that's not maybe a good description. And then you went to Ada, Oklahoma, which is in that part of the state. <laughs> uh, it's You're on the edge of that Little yeah. Dixie part of the state. Uh, and, and then when you came to Oklahoma City— you're in what would be considered uh you know a black part of north oklahoma city and then your church is moved to downtown in a church that has historically
0: been a white church. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's quite a Yeah. So it puts me in a really it's always put me in a really weird place, right? So when I'm in churches that are white, I I have become the um the spokesperson for all things cultural when it comes to anything of color so not and when i say of color i mean like hispanic asian everybody especially african-american obviously because i am but you become like the spokesperson for all things yeah people of color just why we have um, you on the show today <laughs> right and i this, and i'm perfectly <laughs> comfortable in it because you, you're have to explain uh. everything to like this one group and then when you come back to the people who look like you everybody's super suspicious and and like your friends who you've had your whole life are expecting that you will explain their side of the story so like my white friends were like can't you just explain to people that it's not as bad as it looks and I'm like I could but it is um it is as bad as it looks um so, yeah, I, I have lived a life in tension. And even in my family, like, you know, I've got a, a wife who's white. I, my my sister-in-law is white. Um, we've got these, you know, we moved here because all of the cousins get to live together. There are Eight little mixed kids running through this neighborhood that all look like, you know, me and my brother. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it's just a life lived in tension is really what's happened. Um, but I think it's a unique space that this is going to sound really Crazy, but it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's like being blessed. That's a joke. I'm kidding. It, it is, though, because I get to live, it, it has put me in a position where, like, I do get to see both things that are happening. And so it gives me a unique ability to speak into situations, but it's difficult. And the reason why I said the thing about being integrated is because not just at Victory, but even in our churches. So, like, I've been in church long enough for everybody wants to have an integrated church. The problem with integrated churches is, and I still am a complete proponent of integrated churches. The problem is the way that we decide to make integrated churches, somebody always has to give up their heritage and somebody always has to give up their culture in order to get to that place. Right. Yeah. Um, So, you know, black folks, we'll just use black and white, black folks get to the church and, you know, they've got to learn how to become fans of the Hillsong catalog.
1: Right.
0: Um, Or, or they might get an Israel song every couple of weeks. And then your favorite (laughs) black person has to get up and sing the parts. Ben, I think you know what I'm talking about. Like this happens a lot. Like when I walk into a church and people know like, Oh, Nick can sing and Nick can play. It's always, Oh my gosh. Okay. Listen. So, we got this Israel. Have you ever heard, Lord, you are good? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> sure have a bunch. Let me guess you want me to sing it this Sunday. Um, so we talk about integration, but even in the church, the church has been complicit in racism, even in the way that it tries to integrate people. Yes. Because we, we expect people to come in and we want to be able to say, look, We've got this chorus of people who look like what the kingdom of heaven will look like when we get there. And yet we also expect them to leave their heritage and their understandings and their truth behind at the door. So you end up with pastors who can talk about that they're integrated, but then at the same time can't and won't speak to the plight of African-Americans who sit in their congregations. And I don't know if you guys have set in these conversations. I won't put you on the spot in case people know where you guys have worked at before. But I have set in the conversations where it's like, we're not going to talk about this issue. And here's the reason why. And there's always two reasons. The first reason is butts in the seats. And the second reason is money in the plate. The first one is that whole butts in the seats. People might leave if we talk about this stuff because they came here to hear about Jesus. The second one about money in the plate is people will hear us talking about politics and they'll come to me because it's happened and said, I can't give to a church that speaks about this. And I just want to make, so I, I am not currently serving a church and that will probably change in the next couple of weeks. So I'm going to say it now before I can get in trouble for it. That's an admission <laughs> of guilt on the part of the church. Yeah. yeah, And there's no way around it. The Admission of guilt is, We have not done the real hard work in the church of telling the truth and explaining to people that racism is sin. Think for a second, if you were sitting in a church meeting and they were coming with a new series and it was against, I don't know, adultery or murder, and somebody said, Guys, if we talk about murder in church on Sunday, tithing might go down. Right. (laughs) Like, people might leave the church if we talk about murder in an explicit way and tell them explicitly that murder is is a sin and that God won't stand for it. Nobody in the room is going, guys, we might lose some money over this. Yeah. But every time we talk about racism, somebody will almost always go, guys, maybe we should stay out of the fray on this one. Maybe we should just not talk about it this way because, you know, there's those five families that give 60% of the budget and three of them will leave and will be in trouble. Yeah. It's just an admission of guilt.
2: I just have to affirm that your description of those two items has been 100% my experience, right? However, I mean, there is a spiritualization of uh, – pastors have said, you know, you kind of said it like, well, we're supposed to be preaching the gospel, not politics. And the thing is, is for me, like, how do we follow a guy who was crucified, executed by the state for proclaiming another kingdom and expect that that's not always political? It's always political so this idea that the gospel is somehow separate from yeah. political situations that's that is a uniquely uh that is that is from a system again that wants to not mess with those who have power uh, or have people with power mess with them like i we we don't address a gospel that is willing to take on dominant systems especially of oppression
0: i think well b- because the church is okay the problem with the church is, so we're, we're kind of stepping away from like the worldview of what's happening and into the church view, right? So the yep. problem where the church is at is that it has, it has interwoven itself with the system. Um, and I address it this way. I address it. It's the kingdom versus the empire.
1: Thank you for taking the time to listen to part one of this two-part episode of the Out of Context Podcast. Uh, We hope that our conversation with Nick today has stirred up some thought, maybe some self-examination, some conversations in your own life. And we look forward to releasing the second part of this episode very soon. As always, we're so thankful when you rate and review this podcast on whichever platform it is that you're using to listen to it. That just helps us reach more people through uh, these various platforms recommending this podcast Feel free to reach out to us with ideas you may have for a future episode. Uh, we love to hear what you're thinking about and maybe what you'd like to hear us discuss on this podcast. And as always, thank you so much for listening today.